0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACS's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, we will be talking about the role of forced vulnerability in student affairs. Our guests are Madeline Filling, Rashawn McKenzie, and Mallory Powers. Hello to each of you, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello.
2: Hello. Great to be here. Awesome,
0: um, if you wouldn't mind, could you each take a moment and introduce yourselves if you wanna share your name, um, you're all graduate students, so talking about where you're doing your graduate work, the area you're, the functional area you're currently working in um, for your assistantship, and then maybe something that you're currently reading, watching, or listening to. And Madeline, would you mind starting off?
1: Yeah, I would love to. Um, Well, hello, everyone. My name is Madeline Filling. I use she, her, hers pronouns, and I serve as the graduate assistant for student organizations here in the Center for Student Leadership and Engagement at Clemson, um, where I work primarily with supporting student organizations and their successes, as well as co-advising Clemson Student Funding Board. Um, And something I am currently reading, this was actually hard because I'm doing a combination of all three, reading, watching, and listening to different things, Um, but I'm currently reading a book called What Do We Need Men For?, um, a Modest Proposal by Eugene Jean Carroll. Um, and for those of you who don't know, E. Jean Carroll served as Elle Magazine's advice columnist from 1993 to 2019. Um, she's one of the longest uh, advice columnists ever. And uh, yeah, it just covers a road trip that she took in 2017 to seek the answer to this really outstanding question of what do we need men for? Wonderful,
0: thank you so much.
2: Uh, Rashawn, how about you? Hello everyone, my name is Rashawn McKenzie. I use he, him pronouns, and I also work in the Center for Student Leadership and Engagement with Madeline. My specific role is the Graduate Assistant for Student Programs, where I specifically advise Tiger Life Entertainment, which is a student programming board that puts on different events throughout Clemson's campus. Um, I'm currently watching something that was actually a recommendation from Madeline Mallory. Um, It's called Happy Endings on Netflix. It is very entertaining. It's a great show to just like put on in the background while you work and do things. It's hilarious. Um, Yeah, I'm not advertising for them, but like if you you just want a show to put on in the background, happy endings.
0: Excellent, great. How about you Mallory? Hi there.
3: Yes, like Michelle said, my name is Valerie and I work with Clemson's uh, first year academic programs office in a lot of our summer start programming. So we work in academic affairs and work to um, help plan and execute an academic transition program for some of our incoming first year students. And something that I am currently watching, like the true reality show obsessed person that I am, I am watching Love Island. It is currently airing in the UK. It comes on basically every night of the week. Um, I have used my brother's VPN to watch um, it live as it airs in the UK. So it consumes um, a lot of my waking thoughts and it's definitely lovely escapism for um, a very busy summer. So that is what I'm currently watching.
0: Excellent. It's a nice variety of options that you've offered to our listeners. So that's great. Um, So before we kind of get more into the specific topic for today, a question that I always like to ask, uh, a lot of times student affairs people will say, oh, it's such a small field. And so with that sort of in mind, if each of you, and Rashaan, I'll actually ask you to start this time, if you could talk about someone who has been influential or important um, in your experience, either as an undergrad or moving into student affairs as a profession, um, just because I think it's likely that people listening, there are gonna be other people out there who are like, oh, I know that person too. So. Um, So Rashawn, who's who's someone who's been instrumental in your experience?
2: So I actually have three people in mind when I thought about this question. Um, So to begin with, uh, Julie Fleischman, who was probably one of my first advisors at FSU in my undergrad. Um, She just truly understood my vision for mostly anything I was doing, and she never like negated what I was saying. She always said, you know what, dream big, let's figure out how to get this done. Um, and really like saw something in me that I feel like uh, really made my college experience and made me feel like I was important. Um, And then we have Pearson who was my orientation director. Um, She was phenomenal. Uh, She pushed me to go to grad school and really helped me throughout that entire process. She helped me learn as a student leader. Um, And then lastly is actually my best friend, Shane Riley, who's also in the field as a second year in the higher education program. Uh, He goes to UTK, but I consider us as best friends via uh, also like rivals in a sense, um, where we're just constantly pushing each other to do best, especially when it comes to this field um, because we're both very passionate about it. Um, I can't wait to see all the amazing things he'll do. And I know he thinks the same.
0: Wonderful, thank you so much. How
3: about you Mallory? Yes. So when I thought about the people in student affairs who really helped connect me to the profession and provided a lot of inspiration for what this job could be and could look like. Um, I actually thought about people who I worked with in my first professional role before coming to grad school. I didn't necessarily feel super connected to student affairs as a whole during my undergraduate career. I didn't even realize it was something that I really was interested in going into until I worked um, as a consultant with my sorority for two years prior to joining grad school. And that was really the experience that really opened my eyes to what higher education and student affairs can be and can look like. And two of my supervisors in that role, Jamie Cook and Jacqueline Ledford, were really instrumental in definitely opening up that world to me. And Jacqueline actually worked at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville with someone who's now in my cohort. So very much a small world. But um, yeah, those, those two women in my first professional role were really, really foundational for me becoming part of the field.
1: Great. Thank
0: you.
3: And
1: Madeline? this was really hard for me because opposite of Mallory, I think I had an abnormal amount of student affairs experience in undergrad. Um, So I would be remiss if I didn't shout out the entire office of student life at Coastal Carolina university um, because I think they all collectively had an influence on my life and on Um, my work today. A special shout out to Amanda Isel, Brittany Dontelli-Parks, and Amelia Cart. I love you all dearly. Um, But I think if I were to focus on one professional like holistically that really had an influence on um, my future career in student affairs, it would have to be uh, Dr. Debbie Connor. She is currently a clinical assistant professor in the College of Education at Coastal, but when I was there, she she served as our vice president of student affairs all four years um, that I was there. And I worked with her in a variety of capacities, but she is just absolutely incredible and someone who I just adore. And I was in absolute awe of her every single time I was in a meeting that she led. And I knew um, instantly when I decided that I wanted to pursue student affairs, that she was going to be the essay pro that I aspire to emulate.
0: That's great. Well, thank you all. And I I need to quit asking for a person. Nobody ever gives me one. So I need to change my language in the script as far as that goes. But this is great. I mean, and I, I do think what you've shared shows it's different people points. And um, you know, sometimes they they play a different roles for us, navigate where we're headed and and kind of the opportunities that we want to take advantage of. So Thank you for setting the stage for our conversation um, and you know as we kind of get ready to have our conversation about forced vulnerability, I um, I just want to acknowledge this started as a conversation and then it was like hey this should be something maybe we take to a larger audience for more people to think about. So um just by way of a quick introduction um beyond this starting as a conversation i did a little bit of research to prepare for the episode and you know we're we're here we're recording this at the end of july um you know sort of moving out of covid maybe you know but still watching still in it and still trying to figure out what might come next um But this is a time of change. And this is a time when we really have uh, an opportunity to unlearn some things, to relearn and rethink how we do student affairs. So um, I want to focus a little bit today. I, I found an article from 2010 by Judith Jordan called, Valuing Vulnerability, New Definitions in Courage. And I want to read a little bit of what she wrote because I think it really helps set the stage for today's conversation. Um, So she says, depending on the context in which we feel vulnerable, we have to be in danger and open to injury. The experience of vulnerability depends very much on the relational context. Those at the bottom are continually forced into places of vulnerability and then reminded of their vulnerability, partly as a means to intimidate and control them. Later, she goes on. Supported vulnerability occurs in relationships where one is provided the kind of caring that allows one to explore one's. She uses the one reference quite a bit. Um, one's full range of being safe, being in a safe and mutual context. Mutual vulnerability occurs in growth-fostering relationships where both people experience a deep connection and openness to change. Forced vulnerability involves the exercise of power over others, sometimes including being uh, rendered vulnerable against one's will. There is too much loss of control, too much exposure and a differential. So in student affairs, we often expect people to share their identities, challenges, um struggles facing and concerns just as they're introducing themselves through icebreakers team builders um, and those kinds of activities so we're going to talk a little bit today about why and how that ends and the roles in our work as well as the impact it can have on individuals I really appreciate all of you agreeing to talk about this topic. I know that each of you is incredibly invested in the work of student affairs and the experiences that students have, um, as well as staff and faculty. So the topic is important for us to consider as we continue to strengthen the profession and to work to create safe environments where everyone can thrive. Um, One comment that I wanna add is, I think that we're comfortable saying higher education is slow to change. And, you know, in classroom space, we'll hear people, um, complain about, well, this is the way we've always done it. And it's easy to turn that lens on higher education broadly. It can feel a little threatening when we turn it on ourselves as student affairs. And even though I personally don't believe in, well, I went through that. So you need to go through it too. I think I just want to own, I probably, on multiple occasions, been in the role where I have um, sort of perpetuated some of those things. And it a lot of the time, it is just because that's what we know and that's what we do. So this episode, we're going to have some conversation and hopefully ask listeners to really think about what are our goals and who is really put at risk when we people disclose identities. Um, And I've been about this, you know, since the first conversation, so so I'm excited. Now's the time to stop talking and ask you all questions and um, get your perspectives. But would one of you mind with your definition, kind of what is forced vulnerability and you seen it in higher education and or student affairs and these might be your own experiences um but it might also be something that you just we we see what happens in other areas as well so um kind of with that question so Mallory if you don't mind starting what is forced vulnerability to you
3: yeah well thank you so much for that setup Michelle that definitely speaks I think to the experience that a lot of us have had either as undergraduate students or um, seen in workplaces or classrooms. So it's probably something that a lot of us have experienced but not necessarily named yet. And so we're excited to be able to have this conversation. And I think when we think about forced vulnerability, the way that we, I guess, casually have defined it among our sort of um, group of young professionals is really the either spoken or unspoken expectation that people reveal either parts of their identity, background, um, personal history, really for sort of the purpose of bonding as a unit or trying to go grow closer to each other. And so it's not necessarily a vulnerability that feels always super authentic, or like it's occurring in a very trustworthy space, but rather there is some sort of expectation at play um, that is requiring people to be forthcoming about parts of themselves that they might not otherwise disclose with people like coworkers or supervisors or instructors. Um, And so, yeah, definitely just the unspoken or spoken expectation of revealing any sort of sensitive information about you in your personal life. Also, to answer your second question, I think in your intro, I think you set it up well, Michelle. I mean, I think we see this sort of across the board. I think it can range from taking place in what seems like a sort of innocuous icebreaker to being used as part of a staff development day. I think we also see it a lot in clubs and organizations that undergraduate students are often a part of. I think. Um, there are a lot of expectations around team building and team cohesion that a lot of times uh, we place on our undergraduate students, and we hope, you know, to sort of build up undergraduate teams with this sort of tactic and technique. And so I think you can see it in a lot of different ways. I think it manifests itself very differently within student affairs, within different functional areas. I think you'll come to it in very different ways, but um, I think it can be more casual, more formalized, but pretty much across the board, I would say, you might find bits of it within higher
0: ed. You know, it's um, as I was listening to you talk, Mallory, it's almost flipped from what I read from Judith Jordan's work, where that sharing comes as a result of a relationship. I think in student affairs, um, we use it to build the relationship and to force that sharing of um, you know, very personal or intimate parts of ourselves on the front end so then we can have connections. Um, and her point is those relationships have to be built first before you kind of uh, have an environment where it's safe for everybody to share or, or where people feel safe having the power to share or not share um, because sharing is not necessarily always going to be the goal madeline would you talk a little bit about in student affairs specifically why because i again i've been thinking a lot about this and i'm like you know some of the things i've done during trainings i don't think i would have done those things if i was working for a bank you know, or if I was working in some other industry. So what is it you think, why do you think it sort of has taken root in student affairs specifically?
1: Yeah, I think you took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, I have been like thinking through this question and I think you really nailed it in the setup. And I think it's because this career and this field specifically have a very different foundation than a lot of other careers, like at a bank as you were just referencing. Um, But this field specifically focuses so heavily on relationships and feelings and creating these memorable moments for students, which is not a bad thing, right? I think all of it comes with, most of it comes with good intention. So I think um, it's not a bad thing for our career to be founded on those things, um, but with that, that foundation of relationships and feelings and wanting to create community for students, um, we have a counselor focus in our um, degrees here. Um, it's a MEd in counselor education, so um, there's that counseling background that comes into play. There's advising and supporting, and all of that leads to this like natural inclination to want to get to know other people or want to ask those critical questions to get to the root of things with students or with your peers or whatever the case may be. And I think a lot of times, um, essay pros are just known helpers, like they want to help and um, I've seen it you know, here and I saw it in undergrad, like they are a lot of time the first people to jump in um, to help in a situation. And as we know, or as we're trained, like it's, we wanna to get to the root of that problem and like the bigger issues at hand when it comes to what is affecting a student that we're working with. Um, So I think it's important to vocalize and differentiate that it's not necessarily the vulnerability that is that itself that we're challenging in this conversation. It's the how we get there, sort of what you were talking about um, in the sense of like getting to the root of the issue first and before having, you know, a natural relationship form. Um, I think it's also important like you were talking about, um, is the fact that this career is really cyclical in nature, um, and it relies heavily on recruitment tactics, right? So this idea that you were talking about before we started the questions of, well, I did it, so now you're going to do it. It's that same kind of mirror image of, um, you know, I was really drawn to that act those types of activities in undergrad and now I want to facilitate those activities for my students um and student affairs professionals tend to recruit those students who are interested and who you know took a liking to those activities and just keeps perpetuating that cycle um and you know we are again a, a found a career that is founded on relationships and deep connection and intersectionality and all of those things are really great building blocks but they are not the building blocks of other careers right like those working at a bank or those working in data analytics like we've talked about like that's just a not what those careers are founded on so I think in student affairs specifically we have such a draw and such a focus on um, human connection that it perpetuates um, some of this forced vulnerability that we're talking about without even realizing it
2: yeah, oh, and adding
0: appreciate. on to that. Oh, go ahead,
2: Rashawn, I'm sorry. Oh, um, adding, adding on to that. Um, while you're talking, I was thinking about also when is the time that we usually have these activities that we're asking people to be vulnerable? It's usually during the retreat, and I feel like, especially with us, is we... Are like okay we're coming into a new space where these are completely new people let's do a retreat at the very beginning so we get to know each other and then that's where we're, we're automatically saying okay at the beginning of the experience let's do this forced vulnerability where we're doing activities where we get to know as much about these people as fa- as quickly as possible um, so we could then work together where as you're saying in any other place you like build that and then you eventually have that trust and like then you could do a retreat like once y'all are in your down season or anything like that but I think in our field we're very much like a okay we have a new set of people let's figure this out um, so that we are able to work with each other in a kind of like a weird opposite way. I words.
1: yeah, I was gonna say I think that's something we've talked about is this idea of it happens in an opposite format than like the way relationships are built right um I gave the example in conversations that we've had in about this topic and in prepping for this podcast episode is this idea of like going to a retreat and it's right off the bat here is my deepest darkest truth and then weeks later I'm finding out they're like major and favorite color it doesn't even it happens in such a backwards element in student affairs, because I think, Rashawn, you hit on a really good point of it's this idea of like starting fresh with students and forging those connectivities or those connections right from the start instead of letting it develop over time. But yeah, there have been many activities that it's like, here is my trauma and I can't wait to get to know where you're from in a month.
0: (laughs) Great, great. Well, Rashawn, would you talk a little bit about How, how can these activities have differential impact, you know, whether it is identity based positional, you know, how, how do these sorts of things affect people, different people in different
2: ways. So, as Madeline was talking about earlier, there's some students that were drawn to this field because they were like really into these force vulnerability activities um sad to say I'm also one of those students that (laughs) was drawn in because I was like oh my god like I'm learning about people so fast I love this I'm a people person um but then I think for me specifically like it got to the point where I realized looking back that I have so much information on people that I don't even talk to like I know their deepest darkest secrets and like I feel like I am not privy to that information because once This activity was over like we never got that close bond where like i was in that space where i I feel like i should be able to have that access to this person um and then i started to realize that maybe i shouldn't be as open with giving people that much information about myself as well because we get into different workspaces or just different social settings where they're like oh Rashawn," or this person's acting like this because of this thing and maybe that's not something that i want people see me as, especially in a work setting, or like in a different social setting, maybe that's something that like, it's personal to how I am in a different space. Um, And so I think, again, it's having that information over other people and like, not getting to choose when it's used against you in a sense. That I think is kind of the scariest part of this whole practice. Um, But at least coming from someone that again, really enjoyed these activities and I will even say that I was one of those students uh, and even coming into undergraduate uh, uh, was trying to like pressure these activities as well.
0: Other comments on that about how it can, um, and I appreciate what you said, Rashawn, cause it is, we can't give everyone our full story even if we wanted to, but other people are gonna fill in our narratives for us with information that may be completely off track or inappropriate in like an evaluation situation or whatever it might be but um other thoughts about that or or mallory you want to talk a little bit about why would we even do this i know we've touched on a little bit but um why would we know some of this deep personal stuff before we do know favorite color hometown you know, do you have any siblings? Some of those more, hello, it's nice to meet you kinds of things.
3: Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's a million dollar question. Why do we, why do we like this? Why do we do this? I think a main reason is because a lot of times it feels good. I think sometimes it really does create connection and you really do learn about people who you either work with or sit in class with who do share identities and backgrounds. And when you, find that out and you make that connection I think it can be really wonderful and I think there are moments where you it could introduce you to someone that you didn't necessarily know shared something that's in your background. so I think if if people were exclusively having bad experiences with this we might not be thinking about it in such a critical way um, I think it certainly impacts different people differently. I mean I I mean imagine if you are someone, um, with a relatively privileged set of identities. I mean, we have to understand that these sorts of expectations are going to impact that person differently than someone who does not have as much privilege So, in those identities. So, I mean, certainly the even if the prompt is the same or the expectation is the same for a group of students or professionals, I think thinking about it critically, we have to understand that the impact is not going to be the same on each of those people because of the identities that they're, they're bringing to that activity. So I think asking everyone to have the same level of disclosure without really acknowledging that people have wildly different life experiences and backgrounds and identities, I think is just sort of setting the group up for failure because everyone in that room is going to feel that and approach that conversation through a really, really different lens.
0: Madeline, anything you would add to that? And I, I know Mallory touched on it, but especially, so there are approaches. Each way, what are what are some of the um, either experiences that you've observed or thoughts that you have, because you're you're going to be in the role sooner than you think, where you're planning sort of these onboarding activities and things like that, if you aren't already with students. So kind of how do you think about that? Going far enough, but not going so far that people feel pushed to the margins?
1: Yeah, um, again, I think to play off of Mallory's start for the last question, like that is a a great question. Um, I think another disclaimer to add is as grad students, like I have done minimal research on the subject and I have not written a dissertation or like give, like provided a thesis on this, but just from things that I've experienced or things that I have seen, I think that there are pros and cons to activities of this nature. Um, and again, I want to circle back to it's not the information itself. It is how it is asked of students or your coworkers or whatever to share it in, in a place that it's not necessary or that's not warranted. Um, I think a pro is like, we've seen this work. It's similar to Rashawn. I am also, um, I also benefited from activities that asked a lot of me um, in a space that prob- it probably should not have been asked, right? So I really benefited from activities like that as an undergrad. And I thought it was life-changing in that moment. I felt so heard. I felt valued. I, um you know, got friends out of experiences, learning about their lives and realizing, like, I'm not alone in this X, Y, and Z, right? So I think it does work in a sense of, um, you know, giving students a sense of community. But I also think a con to play off of that is when you um, are facilitating an activity that relies on this nature of start with the heavy and deeply personal first. You are inherently ruining that student's chance of being able to naturally and organically develop relationships with each other or with you as their essay pro in that space. Because, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit later. But once it's said, like that's said, you have no control over who, you know, does what with your information. So by facilitating an activity that is asking students these deeply personal things about them, that's now out there. And you can't take that, they, they can't take it back, you can't take it back, you, you know, you now know that. So you're ruining that student's chance of being able to develop a relationship naturally, which I think in addition to this, um, Rashawn and I heard this phrase a lot in undergrad, and it is the phrase trust the process. Um, <laughs> and I think that can be used in both good and bad ways. But I think in this instance, I would argue to flip it and trust the process that relationships will build when given the time um, and space for them to build naturally. Right. So I think trusting that those relationships will come um, when students are given the space to forge those naturally. But I think, um, you know, all of this comes from a place of such care and love and like wanting to be a part of creating a community for students, but I think that there are certainly a variety of pros and cons outside of the ones I've listed um, for doing activities like that. Mm
0: -hmm. As you were talking, it reminded me, you said um, sometimes the sharing is not necessary or warranted. I know this is my conduct person coming out, but it just reminds me of FERPA. FERPA doesn't mean that you can't tell anyone, but you tell people with a legitimate need to know. And what is the legitimate need to know? Some of these things on day three of a new job, you know, or day three of grad school, and really thinking through what is the goal and and trying to build these communities and these deep connections in 15 minutes. I mean, that's counter to what we know about student and human development. So I, I really appreciate those points. Um, you know, we, we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, um, this COVID thing that we're still figuring out. Um, how have you all seen it impact these kinds of practices? Because it's, it's different to take risk in a room where you're sitting with other people But I think some of these same things have continued to happen when we're on Zoom or some people are present or others aren't or even with a mask or physical distancing, uh, social distancing. So what are some of the ongoing repercussions, positive and negative of the pandemic on our thinking about um, the strategies that we use to engage with each other?
2: Well, I think that uh, going back to what Madeline said that there are the pros and cons are like pros. We're trying to still make sure that people feel seen. People are able to have that connection with others, even though that we were in a space where the only time we were actually meeting new people and seeing these people are online. But oddly enough, at least from our, I think my experience, and I think I could possibly count for the other two, um, there's still that same expectation to be just as vulnerable online during this pandemic season. Um, I've been in situations where they still expected me to give the same amount of level of trust and uh, care into into people that I've not only have only met, like I've been introduced to like maybe once or twice, but I've never seen them in person. Um, I have I don't have that bond I don't have that connection with them at all everything feels like a virtual once I can't slap my computer down these people don't exist in my head um, and so to be asked to kind of share that part of yourself online where as we know what goes online permanently stays online whether we like it or not um, it's kind of it was a weird push you know like a direction that I don't think any of us thought we were going to go into. But again, it's because we still want to make sure that people are getting this connection. They're still uh, are able to find people that are like them. Um, but it kind of, I don't know, I haven't I haven't seen a, too much positives when it came to this.
1: I was going to say, I think to add on to Rashawn's point too, I think it was heightened even more than it already is in our field because I think as I talked about in the beginning like we are founded and thrive on this idea of like building relationships and being in community with one another and that is great but I think it's heightened even more because we were so deprived of that for such a long time I mean I'm not going to say were or was it's still present we are still in a pandemic I want to to make that known but um, I think because of that it is you know asked even more than it would be in a normal setting because we now right even though we are half virtual we're starting to come back to campus or whatever the case may be I think because we were away for so long um that's being asked of us even more than it would be in a normal workspace classroom whatever the case may be um and I think too that plays off of what I was talking about earlier this idea of like right off the bat here's my deepest, darkest truth. And then a week later, I find out what your major is. Like now, I don't even know how tall these people are. I only see everyone from the shoulders up, but now I'm expected to trust them with my life secrets. That is so backwards, right? And it's what, you know, we talked about learning and unlearning. If you think about that sentence for a second, I have no idea how tall these people are, but they get to walk around knowing my lived experience. What? No, it is so, it- it, it really stops you in your tracks. Or at least for me, like when I think about things like that, if you were to plug that sentence into any other career field, that would be an HR nightmare. That's not even, that is not plausible in so many other careers, but in student affairs, if I were to say that to other essay pros, they'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You probably did X, Y, and Z icebreaker to get there, you know? So I think it's been asked of us even more um, to, be vulnerable in settings um, or to set that example. I use air quotes, like you all can see, this is an audio podcast, um, air quotes. Um, But I think that's being asked of us even more and to set that example of um, being vulnerable and, you know, asking that of students or of each other.
0: Well, okay, so... We've talked about vulnerability. We've talked about, I mean, I love that you mentioned the thing about how tall people are. I was talking to someone the other day who, um, you know, did the job search, took the job in sort of the virtual format and then got there. And she said, everyone here is so tall. I didn't know that. I I don't think it would have changed her decision to take the job, but um, I mean, that's real, you know, and one of the, the phrases that shows up a lot and this is not unique to student affairs universities claim you know okay you've been admitted or join even before you've been admitted join the fill in the blank family so how does this idea of family whether it's unique to a unit or a division or the way that it's used across uh, across an institution How does that connect to this idea of forced vulnerability? To
3: your point, Michelle, I think this is the one part of this conversation that actually does reach across uh, professions. I think this is something that, you know, we were just talking about the pandemic. I think this is something that the pandemic really revealed to a lot of different people in a lot of different fields, um, sort of breaking apart and, you know, really trying to unpack the idea of the workplace as a family. It's also to your point, Michelle, something that institutions love to refer to themselves as. And I think really this combination of of the pandemic and other, other career fields, just really starting to interrogate the idea of what it means to be an employee in 2021. I think people are starting to sort of see through this terminology because I think a lot of the implications are, or a lot of the implications, I think, I mean, there's a lot for undergraduate students. I think for the essay professionals in general, um, it. I think it really distracts us from the fact that this is a job and it's a job that most people in this field love and are obsessed with and feel fulfilled by and dream of doing and still at the same time, at the end of the day, it's a job and we work for an institution and so, I think something that our generation is getting much more comfortable with in general is the idea that we are employees at a company at the end of the day. And so, I mean, there are just feelings, I think, inside student affairs and outside of it of this is my job and you're my boss and I don't necessarily need to disclose my trauma to you. Like That's not necessarily a requirement of a workplace. Um, That's not necessarily going to make me a better employee. That's not necessarily going to enhance our work experience. And so I think now people are just really starting to grapple with this idea of what is a family? Is my workplace a family? Do I consider my coworkers family members? And that answer is different for everyone and different for every situation. I think now people are really starting to interrogate that idea and to the point that we made at the beginning of the podcast, I think it's something that people in student affairs are now starting to consider. I do think we are a little bit behind in that. When I even consider my friends who are in their mid-20s in other career fields, I think the conversations that they're having with their friends at their workplaces look a little bit different than the ones I'm experiencing inside of student affairs. I think it largely speaks to Madeline's point about, this is a profession that attracts educators and helpers and people in this profession love this job and would sacrifice so much in themselves for their students. And ultimately at the same time, we have to recognize that this is a job that, you know, pays our bills. So where is the balance in that? I think is what people are sort of struggling um, to work through. I'm still trying to negotiate what my boundaries are as it relates to being part of an institutional family. What does that mean for me? What does that look like? What implications does that have for me in the classroom and in the workplace? And it's something that I hope people continue to interrogate and unpack for themselves, because I think that has been the driving um, factor for a lot of people sort of losing themselves in their work and feeling as though they need to disclose a lot of personal information when that would not necessarily be the case in another field.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, what you're saying reminds me, and if I could remember who told me this, I would give them credit for it. But somebody said to me early on in my career, don't ever forget people may love institutions. Institutions do not care about people, you know, and that's not about who the leader is. That is just the reality. It is a place and it will find a way to function at the expense of the people who work there. Um, I would say sometimes, but I feel like during the pandemic, everybody has experienced that in some way. Um, Yeah, so this this idea of language is really important and there's a myth that we create, you know, depending on the the words and the phrases that we use. What about um, safe space and brave space when we're talking about conversations with each other? What implications does that language have with this idea of being obligated to share things?
2: So I think it's really weird because there's an implication when you say safe space or brave space that the space wasn't before. Um, It's an implication that you're going into a space where you're about to give information that you might feel uncomfortable giving. Um, And I think it's gotten to the point where like safe space and brave space, uh, mostly safe space, is kind of used like a, a meme to the outside world. They're just like, oh yeah, like this is a safe space. You can tell me anything you want um when in reality is the space even safe will when you say things in this space is it going to stay there and for the most part it's not uh going back to our earlier point of once it's out there it's out there and we're trying to essentially label a space where you feel comfortable enough to just put your whole self out there which kind of again goes into the whole force like when do you hear safe space is when something serious has happened when uh you got retreat and you're trying to hear, like you're trying to learn about someone else. You're, you're saying that this is a safe space. Um, and it's never just like, uh, this is a safe space. What's your favorite color? This is a safe space. What's your favorite food? It's always, here's what, this is a safe space. This is a place for you to be brave. Um, it's really funny because uh, when we were discussing this earlier, Mallory was like, no one's going to, I don't understand why people are calling this a brave space. It's not like some people are walking around calling people cowards, which is coincidentally something I do. But I'm not... <laughs> Uh, so I don't know maybe there are other people out there calling people cowards for not talking in brave space that's not specifically why I call people cowards Um, but like we don't have people going around saying like hey you're about to go into a space where I'm going to ask you just very general information to get to know you Um, feel free to like say this information Um, we're like no this is a safe space this is a brave space please tell us everything about yourself Um, it looks like y'all have something you want to add to it.
1: (laughs) I just have been waiting for this question because I, to your point, like this is, We use it in conversation as such a joke. Like Mallory and I in our house are like, okay, you know what? This is a, this is a brave space. And I'm, thank you so much. This is actually, we are going to establish that this is a safe space because that's how it was used around us. And now it is so overused that it has no meaning anymore because I think too, you can't promise that like when you, as an instructor or as a facilitator, or as an essay pro, like when you say this is going to be a safe space or a brave space and then work with students, peers, coworkers, whoever to, you know, establish guidelines for that. You can't guarantee that those will hold true. And I just think that again, to Rashawn's point about calling people cowards, I laugh because it's so the I've heard him use it in sentences and it's so funny, but I think it's the implication that like, if you don't share then you are not brave in that space. And that again, puts pressure on students to have to share and perpetuates this cycle of forced vulnerability that you have to share in order to be considered brave in that space. Um, So I think that there's can be some really harmful implications for using a really just overused term like brave or safe space. And I also think to Rashawn's point, if I am sitting in like a retreat space or in a lecture space or whatever the case may be, and the like third slide after the agenda is safe space, I, it triggers a fight or flight instinct in me. Because again, I know it's the questions that follow are not going to be, how was your day at work? Or um, what are you reading? No, it's going to be, what is your deepest, darkest most painful experience. And how can we grow from that? Like it is, there are implications, uh, mainly negative about using it in conversation and thus promising something that you can't keep. And then I think also it is implying that the questions are going to be deep. And I, I just think that it's, the words and phrase safe space and brave space are hollow to me at this point because they've been so overused. And it has, I mean, I'll speak for myself, come back to bite me in the butt far too many times because I have said something or something has been said and I've watched it play out where that person told this person and this person told that person. And again, to circle back to our very first point about the connectivity in student affairs, everyone knows everyone and your business is going to be out there, right? So it's like, Again, to my point earlier, once you say it, you can't take it back. And then, because you're sitting in a room with a bunch of people who know everyone else, it's just going to be out there. So, I think um, there's a lot of negative implications when we use phrases like safe space and brave space um, that I think don't you don't really realize until you really sit down and think about what that means.
0: Yeah. I'm like jotting notes as you all are talking, but I, one of my pet peeves as a student, as you know, a practitioner, as a faculty member is going into a room and someone saying what's said in here stays in here. No, it doesn't. Quit doing that. You know, quit saying that maybe, maybe if Rashawn and I are in a room together, And I say, I would really like this to stay between us, maybe. But you bring a third person in and it's just, and then to do it in a class. And it always, to me, what you're talking about is a little bit like mentoring. I don't like it when people say, oh, I'm a mentor for so-and-so. You don't get to decide that. The person, I mean, unless it's like a titled role or something, the person who's being mentored decides who their mentors are. The people in the space decide if it's safe, decide if they wanna be brave. You don't get to dictate that. You cannot tell people how to feel about spaces or um, their level of security in sharing things or not sharing things, so um, yeah. And I
3: I think we probably have all had the experience where a lot of the places or rooms where we have felt the safest have not called themselves that i think the label is attempting to create something that might not be there and i i do think that as professionals and as students we we know what feels safe for us and what doesn't regardless of title um so that's another thing too where if a space is truly safe do we have to call it such for it to be that? I don't think so. I think, I think people know that are in the room. They know whether or not, you know, it's a safe place for them to bring them whole, their whole selves.
0: Yeah. Well, and so the people who are often making the decisions about not making the decisions, they're designating safe and brave spaces, whether they're actually safe or brave or not tend to, be leaders, right? They might be supervisors, they might be faculty members. Um, so what what is the role of hierarchy? How does that influence this issue and these dynamics in different situations?
3: I think that when we think about forced vulnerability or vulnerability in the classroom or the workplace or in an organization, I think power and hierarchy are in every bit of those conversations. I have found that student affairs is very hierarchical. And even in a room where there are undergraduate students and graduate students and professional staff members, all of that, I mean, there are just so many implications for these groups of people talking to each other. And I think it would be naive to say that those power differentials don't have an impact on the way that people bring themselves to that conversation or approach the idea of being vulnerable in the workplace or the classroom. And I think just speaking from personal experience, I I think I can speak on behalf of all three of us when we say that we've been in, in spaces where there's some mechanism of accountability that is attached to these opportunities to share whether it's a performance review or a grade. um, I mean, these conversations, they just have power is inherently interwoven in all of these conversations. And so I especially think that, you know, as young professionals as we are, or people who are in the field and part of these leadership roles, I think being very critical and thinking very critically about, the power dynamics and differentials that exist in a room when we're asking people to proceed in these activities, I think people with not a lot of power in this space are going to feel probably more coerced in these conversations just because that's the reality of power within schools and workplaces. So, I mean, to me, I think power maybe plays the biggest role in all of this because those who exist with the least amount of power just don't have as much say. So, Um, Yeah, I I definitely think the two are inextricable from each other. Mm -hmm.
0: So you're all brilliant, solution-oriented people. Um, What would you really like leaders, whatever that means? You know, if it's a supervisor, if it's a faculty member, if it's a... The leader of a student org that is bringing new members in what would you like them to consider developing onboarding events and activities and experiences for students staff. Um, Again, in the classroom, it might be a training or a workshop in terms of expectations around vulnerability and and slash or what will you take into your work? Or what do you do in your practice with groups that you're working with already to help? Because we do want strong teams, you know, and we do want to develop space where these relationships can, can take root. Um, so what recommendations would you have? Or if not recommendations, please do this. Um, requests, please don't do this, you know, cause it can, both can be helpful. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think circling back to a point that I made earlier, we are not experts in this. Um, so I wish I had like here is our magic solution to eradicate this problem in the field. Uh, unfortunately, I do not have that. Um, but I think the last part of the question that you asked, like this expectations around vulnerability, I think that you know frames my answer. It should never be your expectation that your students, your coworkers, if you're on a supervisory team, etc., fill in the blank. That it, it should never be the expectation that they need to be vulnerable with you or with each other for them to continue their development or for them to um, be vulnerable for the sole purpose of building relationships with one another. It should never be the expectation that vulnerability um, be a part of that and be a part of your training in order to forge those relationships. I think um, the other part of the question about as we prepare for trainings and activities and um As Rashawn was talking earlier, you know, new students that we're interacting with, students coming back to campus. I think one thing I would want listeners and even myself as I'm preparing for hiring new students to come um, work with our team and what that looks like, I think I would want everyone to consider that trust takes time and relationships thrive when autonomy is involved and when that happens organically. So I think the time as you're sitting there looking at your retreat schedule, at your staff training, at whatever the case may be whatever time that you have allotted to do some activity that you are questioning is time that you can provide to just give students space to get to know one another. Um, And I think that that's something I really want to take with me as I continue growing um, as a, you know, future student affairs professional is this idea that by allotting time for students to just be, or for me to just sit and hang out with my coworkers, um, or whatever, fill in the blank, like, to get to know one each other organically and be patient, the relationship will come um, and develop as a result of that. Um, so I think that is sort of one thing, or I guess several things at this point that I would want um, listeners to sort of take with them or even for me as I prepare um, for students to come interact with me is this idea that just trust that it will happen.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Great. I think you really took the words out of my mouth. Uh, I was thinking the exact same things uh, and you said it all so perfectly.
3: Yeah, you know, this question is funny because something that I always said as an undergraduate student leader was if you come to me with a problem, you come to me with a solution. I think that was partially just me being very overwhelmed as a leader of an organization and feeling like I, I, I just couldn't make everything happen unless you told me what you wanted to happen. And I feel a little like I'm breaking my own rule with this instance because I can point to a lot of problems, but I don't necessarily have a ton of concrete solutions. I think I think even just having this conversation is super important. I personally don't feel like enough people necessarily are having this conversation and thinking critically about the kinds of activities that we're asking undergraduate students and our coworkers and our offices to participate in. So even if this is just starting the conversation and the first step is just us thinking critically about the practices that we have set up for ourselves, I think that's a success. I think it's a step forward and in the right direction. I agree with Madeline that hopefully we're not continuing activities where we are really prying Sensitive information out of our students, especially because we know that that's going to have a different effect on students with marginalized identities than it does students with privileged identities. Um, and I think, even just if you, if we are facilitating an activity where we know it could go to a place where people are sharing things about themselves, I think even the disclaimer that we don't necessarily expect that from you, I think that that can do a lot for the group. I think even just knowing. Y'all, we're going to work through this together. Feel free to share if that is something that you want to do and you are passionate about and you want to speak to us about, but it is by no means an expectation that at the end of this activity, we walk away having disclosed a major part of ourselves. So I think even saying that and really setting the expectation that there's no expectation, I think can be really helpful. But ultimately, to Madeline's point, I hope that people are just walking away from this Starting to think really critically about the practices that they're participating in, either in the classroom or in an activity or in the workplace as well.
1: I was just gonna say, you know, off of what Mallory was saying, um, something we've harped on a lot is this idea of unlearning and relearning. And I think this topic in particular is something that you are just blissfully unaware about until someone points it out to you that these activities are flawed. I, in full honesty, did not know that some of the activities I did in undergrad were abnormal until Mallory in this present year said, oh, um, no, what you're saying is, uh, uh, no, that's really, that's interesting. That uh, probably shouldn't have happened. Like I, and I have thought about it ever since because it really, for me, once I realized like, oh, that really isn't how relationships are built. That's really weird. Once I start asking myself those questions and really thinking through that, it has opened my eyes to this, uh, this practice that is just like the social norm within our field. Um, And I think, you know, change is really hard and it's really hard to wrap our brains around that. And I think, Michelle, you talked about it at, you know, the very beginning of the podcast, this idea of like, Well, this is how we've always done it, it can be really hard to challenge that. But I would also just encourage like as leaders and faculty and supervisors are preparing for their students to come back to think about activities that they have done or participated in that might have raised a red flag, like knowing what you know now. And I think, um, you know, learning and unlearning is part of this work. And I think to the end of Mallory's point, like think critically about these activities. And if it raises um a flag or like you fur your eyebrow at one of the questions think about the implications of asking something like that in a space
2: also when researching even to talk about this discussion there isn't a lot of materials out there on this topic uh like what we were saying so like if anyone out there listening feels very passionate about this and goes wait maybe a lot of things that i also was going through like maybe that was forced i mean i think the more we talk about this uh like Uh, everyone else is saying, and the more that we actually like go into researching about this, so we could do the unlearning and relearning process. And so we could actually come up with some concrete answers uh, would be the better for us as a field. And I know that our field is again, one that like tends to be behind with everything else, but I don't know. I think as uh, what Mallory was saying, starting this conversation is a great first step.
0: Yeah. Well, as we start to move kind of toward wrapping up, is there anything that I should have asked that I didn't, or any other comments or observations or um, calls for consideration that you all want to make before we conclude for today?
1: I, I'm we're shaking so- our heads like the audience <laughs> see us. Um, I keep forgetting that there's no visual. Um, I wish you all could see the amount of like exaggerated nods that have happened as uh, we all have talked. But yeah, we're all just nodding no as if you all can see. But uh, sorry about that, Michelle.
0: <laughs> no problem. It's good. I should have you sit in on all of them and then you could be like the narrator. Head <laughs> shaking. Hair quotes. <laughs> Um, No, this has been really good. And I do, I I agree with what you all said. I hope that people will think more about this um, because there are implications, you know, this can show up in, so in my classroom, you know, pretty much every course I teach, participation is part of what students get points for. Well, what if a student doesn't want to participate around some sort of self-disclosure piece does that show up in their grade? I'm sure it has. You know, we need to be rethinking that. In um, a job evaluation, is a team player? You know, if everyone else is comfortable disclosing, oh, this is this part of my identity is X, and someone doesn't want to share that, does that show up in an evaluation? Do people make meaning of that? Of their attending to their own well-being and safety instead of you know, okay, I'll put this out there so everyone else can benefit from my suffering or my um, struggle or this piece of my identity that I don't just give away to people. You have to kind of earn a spot where I'm going to share this part of who I am with you. So there is, it's it's one of those things that, you know, you all brought it up and I'm like, I just see it everywhere now. And so... Um, there definitely is more thinking, research, conversation um, to be done on this topic. So, um, I just again thank you all for your time. I know everyone is busy. I, I actually quit asking people. So, is this a slow time for you? Because that's there's no slow time. It's what what kind of busy are you right now? You know is more of the truth. So. Um, But there is so much going on. And the fact that you all were willing to come together and have this conversation today, it really means a lot. Um, I hope each of you are doing all right uh, in whatever you're navigating. I won't ask you to share that in this podcast. (laughs) Amazing. Um, Thank you. I was (laughs) going
3: to say, everyone, tell us your deepest, darkest secret. It'll bond us as a
1: group. Look at this theory to practice happening live local lay breaking. This is incredible. (laughs)
2: I'll start. Uh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So um, before we go, I would ask if you each have a quote and or something that's bringing you hope right now. You know, it's again, summer's not a bad time, but it's not a slow time. And fall, I'm looking forward to it remind me that I said that, you know, in the middle of September when I'm feeling overwhelmed, but what are some things for each of you? Either a quote, some things that are bringing you hope, some of each. Um, and Mallory, would you mind starting?
3: Yeah, there's a really great quote from Amina Sow's newsletter issue, one of hers from back in December. Um, she wrote about work and people's relationship to work, And she has a really lovely, well, I think it's a lovely quote. Um, She has a really lovely quote in there about work not being a family, but it's still a place where we can feel a sense of belonging and an obligation to care for each other. And I really like that sentiment because as we acknowledged earlier, institutions don't typically love us back, um, but we can still find community and a sense of belonging in our place of work. And that's something that I hope to participate in and create as a professional. So I definitely resonated with that quote. And I love that. The other thing giving me hope, as Madeline can attest, these 13 year old girls winning gold and silver medals in street uh. skateboarding. I mean, it has filled me with such hope for our youngest generation. I think teenage girls are the coolest people in the world. I think they can do anything. And I think they're the most powerful people. So shout out to all of the adolescent street skateboarders, uh, particularly the young girls, because they, they've they helped me get through this week. Yeah.
0: That's awesome.
1: Um, I think you know, to piggyback off Mal, I'll start with what gives me hope because it's also Olympic content. Um, We have been watching the Olympics in our household. Um, But I think as, you know, heartbreaking as it is to watch, I think Simone Biles is absolutely one of the most incredible people I have ever learned about, read about. And I think she is just absolutely setting the stage for expectations for athletes in the future. I think um she is just incredibly brave. And I am filled with so much pride um thinking about her prioritization of herself. Um, And I think that fills me with hope that, you know, she is setting the expectation as hard as it is that, you know, future athletes need to take care of themselves and that the pressure is intense because they are human beings too. But I think off of that, a quote that I um, am thinking about for this, as someone who has a Pinterest board that's just like full of motivational quotes, this is also hard to narrow down. But um, I think this one quote really resonates for this conversation in particular, and it is um, the Maya Angelou quote, do the best you can until you know better then when you know better, do better. Um, And I think this quote really resonates with me for this conversation in particular, because, again, I had no idea my experiences were abnormal until someone looked at me and was like, oh, no. Um, But I think it wasn't until that moment that I realized that I need to be doing better by my students and the students that I'm interacting with, because it's going to be up to us to create that change, uh, and I think it plays into, the quote plays into my work and life philosophy of you don't know what you don't know, um, meaning that we should constantly be learning in our roles, like no matter the position or years in the field, like, we should constantly be learning and growing with our students um, in order to do better, uh, as Maya Angelou states.
2: Wonderful. I, when I think about things, something that's giving me hope, I'm thinking about this next generation of students, uh, these I don't know if y'all have seen or heard about anything from these next generation students. We, I mean, we've obviously talked about these 13 year old skateboarders um, but they are so intelligent. I know they have like the internet just access to do anything and see anything, but they're so smart and they are great at advocating for themselves, for themselves, which I'm truly jealous by. Like they know what's right from wrong and they are very willing to be like, okay, let's make this, a thing that needs to change. Let's challenge these boundaries and let's break them. Um, And honestly, it's something that when I think of, I'm just like, I'm jealous. I wish that like I need to get better at advocating for myself. And I honestly look up to these people because I'm just like they are able to just be able they're able to break these boundaries that I think I've essentially set for myself Um, on you deserve to be treated better. You deserve to uh, feel like you are important in the space. Um, and going with that, a quote that I love to look at is caring for myself is not self indulgence, it is self preservation, and that is an act of political warfare by Audre Lorde. Um, anytime I'm feeling down, or anytime I'm just like maybe maybe what I'm doing is wrong, I'm like, wait, am I taking care of myself first and foremost? Is like what is happening to me okay? Is it right? I think about this quote, um, and I think again. Uh, these Future Generations is really like channeling, uh, channeling this. And uh, it's both something I hope for and for this incoming future, but also hope for myself.
0: Wonderful. Well, again, thank you all so much and um, for your your thoughtfulness throughout the entire episode. And, you know, those closing comments really are hopefully some things that people can carry with them um navigating whatever whatever comes next because it'll be something so um so thank you one more time to our guests today i really enjoyed learning from you all um and i know that's in the script but it actually is really true i would have said it even if i hadn't scripted it today's essay today podcast is brought to you by Saxa, and we thank them for their support Additionally, the show would not be possible without my producer, Jen Lowe at the University of South Florida. Thank you as always for everything that you do, Jen. And then today I'd also like to leave with a quote um, from Dana Boyd, privacy is not a static construct. It is not an inherent property of any particular information or setting. It is a process by which people seek to have control over a social situation by managing impressions, information flows, and con, uh, context. And so this idea of privacy, I think we need to, we talk about respecting our students' privacy. We need to do that for each other too. Um, and, uh, let people have control over what they share and when they share and how they share and to be comfortable with, it might not be stuff they share with everybody who's a part of the team. And that needs to be okay. But the, the idea of time, you're not going to, you know, sort of build this transformative unified team over the course of a three hour workshop or a day and a half retreat. It takes a lot of time to build the trust where that can be fostered. My name is Michelle Botcher. It has been a pleasure to host this episode. Um, again, thank you all very much. I'm excited to get to keep learning with you all this fall. So have a beautiful day.